you're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook, Mountain View Church NC. Thanksgiving is like a weird holiday. I don't, you ever thought that like people outside of America look at us and they're like, what are they doing? Like how weird, like just take a moment here. Have you ever thought and wondered? How weird a holiday Thanksgiving is when you're like, we all are going to gather around a large table or tables. If you were uh, in a deeply southern house like mine, you had the adult table and the kids' table. And even if you were like 17 years old, it was like, mm, you still sit at the kids' table. Uh, and you sit there and you're like, what a weird holiday is this? We'll gather around and then we'll get with family members who nine times out of ten for the rest of the year... We disagree with on so many things, but we're going to gather around, and we're going to hang out together, and we're going to inevitably argue about morality, politics, sports, whatever, you name it, it's going to come up, and then we're going to gorge ourselves on, like, the worst meat product you could, like, turkey, turkey, like, deli meat, it's just glorified deli meat that we spend hours preparing, like Thanksgiving Day. I woke up at 7 in the morning and put a turkey in the smoker. What other time of year would I be like, Don? Yeah, no, it's a turkey. And then for some reason, you can buy deli meat, and deli meat's not that expensive, but you buy a whole turkey, and it's insane. This year I was looking, I was like, $50 for a turkey? Uh, why? I could spend less money on steaks. We could eat steaks. Why not eat steak? Like, why do we have an America holiday where we don't eat steaks? That just, it makes no sense. And then we're like, to make this holiday more American, let's have a giant parade where we have inflatables and terrible lip syncing. We'll put that on in the morning, followed by the National Dog Show. Like, when did that become a tradition in a pastime? And then you follow all of that up by watching the Detroit Lions lose. Doesn't matter how good or bad their team is, every year on Thanksgiving, they're going to lose. You watch that and you think, this is great, I'm going to take a good afternoon nap and then eat more of the same leftovers, and you act like those leftovers are better than any other year's leftovers. It's still just turkey. And then you wake up the next morning at the butt crack of dawn to go fist fight one another on Black Friday shopping. After being so thankful for all the things on Thursday, on Friday, you're like, here's all the things that I wasn't thankful for because I didn't have them yet. You know, like, it's so weird. And now we've added all these other things to it, like Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday. Listen, we all know we just buy everything from Amazon anyway. Like, it's such a, Thanksgiving is such a weird holiday. I, maybe, you, maybe you have a different opinion about it, but not me. And that's, that's, I've just, that's where I landed at it. Um, but I hope, I hope you're over that. I took a good nap on Thanksgiving Day on the Clem's couch. Uh, we, we had Thanksgiving with them, and then I crashed out. It was great. Um, but I'm glad you're here. You've, you've put all the trip to fan behind you. Any, all, anybody still have leftovers of Thanksgiving in the refrigerator that they're still eating on? All right. Let's see. Again, why would I want a four-day-old deli sandwich. If I wanted that, I'd go to Subway. Um, 
ooh, sorry. Shots fired. Shots fired. Some of y'all must be Subway fans because you're like, ooh, ooh. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you, maybe you looked at this week's text and thought, oh, we must be done with Ephesians. Perhaps you looked at the text of this morning and thought, uh, I don't know how anybody would preach a sermon on those four, vor- four verses. Um, perhaps you looked at it and you were like, hey, that's not Mike. That's right, I'm not. Uh, but all of these things are true today. So this morning we are going to wrap up Ephesians. We are not done yet. Uh, also, yes, we are going to preach through these four ending goodbye verses, and I'm going to try to do my best to pick and grind and pull out every moment of goodness we can from this last section of Ephesians as we prepare for Christmas. Uh, and I also looked at these verses and thought, Mike just really wanted to enjoy his Thanksgiving and watch me squirm a little bit. Like, he's just feeling good. He, he got to go to his mom's house and eat some turkey, and now he's like, ha-ha, the entertainment. Let's see what he does with this. Um, but hey, we're here together, and we're going to work through this. Uh, I know that he would never do that to hurt me. Uh, it was probably just for his own comedy that he gave me these verses. Just kidding, just kidding. If you got your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to finish the last four verses here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, and this is what he says. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. I'll pray and we'll dive in this morning. God, we ask that you would guide us through these four short verses this morning, that you would direct our minds and our hearts, that we would glean from the word this morning truth and understanding, that it would shape us and mold us into the image of Christ, that we would apply the text that we have wrestled through for the past few months, combine it all together that it may affect our hearts and our minds this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right. Well, if you're a note taker, let's just start right here from the very beginning. First thing I want us to see this morning, Paul talks about in the very beginning, and if you, if you just glance over it, you might miss it, but it's this, that the scriptures are there to encourage your heart. Right? That's what he says in the beginning. He says, so that you may also know how I am. Right? He's, he's talking here, and he's saying, hey, I wrote all this letter so you know that how, how I'm doing. He said, I sent Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He'll tell you everything. We also know that he sent uh, Timothy here to Ephesus to preach and teach to these people that he's empowered the church with good leadership and authority pouring over them. And then he says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Or that he may encourage your hearts. Well, what is he encouraging their hearts with? Is it just his presence? Well, maybe. I mean, all of us can think of someone we've been around who is just an encouragement. You know those people in your life? I'm not it to anybody that I know of. Um, I'm, I'm the Debbie Downer, the glass half empty. But some people in your life are just an encouragement, right? Like you think of someone in your life who just them being around you, just their general presence just kind of brightens your mood. You know the kid or the person that walks in and you're like, that guy right there, he's just happy to be here. Right, we got one right here. I was waiting for him to amen so I could like segue it. Right, we have encouragers in our life. There's people that we have in our daily lives that, that, 
They just, they come into a room and they bring encouragement. And the, the hope is that that's what, that's what Paul's talking about a little bit here, is that Timothy and Tychicus, that these guys are an encouragement just by their presence. But quite honestly, there's a deeper encouragement there, right? For us as believers, where does our biggest set of encouragement come from? Well, one, it comes from others, other believers. Why? Because they're filled with the same spirit, right? Their spirit the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead that lives inside of you and lives inside of them if you're a believer in Jesus, that spirit speaks to my spirit and to your spirit, right? There's people in our lives that our spirits connect. You ever just been in one of those moments where, uh, I love when this happens, when you're somewhere. So it happened this week for us. Uh, some of you know that our, our oldest boy, Gideon, he's nine. He's had some stomach issues, and so he had to go and have a procedure in Charlotte. So we're at the Levine Children's Hospital. The nurse comes and gets us for his procedure and brings us back so they can do anesthesia and all that stuff. And he's talking back and forth, and I'm like, this guy's just, he's good at his job. He's just really nice. He's, he's asking good questions. He's interacting with Gideon and just having a whole deal. And I was like, this, is, this, is a, this guy's good at his job. Like, he's just a good nurse. And we're talking, and he's just chill. And then they take Gideon back with Nellie for the, the procedure to put him under anesthesia. And the nurse is like, I'll walk you to the lobby. And we're walking out there, and he said, man, I love your hat. Where'd you get that? My hat just said, God won. And I was like, now I get it. I know why you're super nice. And while we were, like, hanging out, you love Jesus too, right? You ever been in one of those situations where you start talking to somebody, and you're like, man, I like this guy. And then you quickly realize, I bet they love Jesus too, and then you find out they do. Why? It's the spirit inside of us encouraging one another. That's what Paul is saying here, that he sent these folks to Ephesus to minister and encourage by one, the spirit that's in them speaking in community and brotherhood with one another, right? And sometimes encouragement looks different. Sometimes encouragement is saying, hey, stop it. Put your stuff together here. Like, get it together. Come on. And some of us need that in our life sometimes. Some of it's just like, a great job. Keep it up. Keep going. You're doing fantastic. Feel this encouragement, right? It's the Spirit. But the second thing is, well, these guys didn't just come to hang out. What did they come to do? Paul sent them there on a purpose, to preach the Word, to teach the Word, to encourage the body with the Scriptures, right? All of the Scripture is good for us. It is what teaches us. It is what shapes us. It is what molds us. Scriptures are there to encourage our hearts, right? All of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is there to encourage our hearts, we see the second Timothy chapter three, verse 14 through 16 says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? The Bible is our roadmap, it's our counsel, it's our disciplinarian, it's our source of truth. And we choose to discard it often. As one famous pastor said, we, we want to unhitch it from itself. We want to generally disobey it or stand at odds with it. Right? We do this all the time. The scripture is there and to encourage us and how we ought to walk and work and live and function. And we often say, yeah, well, I mean, I know what it says but this is what I want to do. <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm feeling in my heart. These are the things that I'm wrestling with and, and I just don't think that it helps me here. I know the scripture says don't be angry, but you don't understand what anger I live with. I know the scripture says don't lust, but you don't understand what it's like to be a man in this society. I know the scripture says don't lie, but you don't know what it's like to try to run a business in this, this culture. No. 
we have to submit ourselves to the truth of the Word of God. It has to affect every single aspect. We can't unhitch it from certain aspects and think we've got this on our own. No, we've, we've got to hold on to the text, right? And, and all of it, Old Testament and New, that's why he said you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. It's there to encourage our heart. Often in our today's society, we see folks who want to dismantle the scriptures. We want to, we want to just pick it apart. That's not really what that section means. That's not really what the Bible says there. I, I, I can do this because that's a poor translation of what the text says. We have to adapt it to modern. We, we have all of these things that we wrestle with. If we would just submit ourselves to the text, we'd understand really quickly what it looks like to follow Jesus. We want to complicate it because realistically, we don't want to follow Jesus. We want to follow sin. Why? Because it's easier to just do what we want, to give in to ourselves. Right? You, you, you see this with kids all the time. They wrestle through stuff, and, and you're like, oh, yeah. For example, Thanksgiving, we're at the Clem's house, and we pull up, and Cameron, who plays football for Murphy, has his helmet on the porch. And I looked at my wife, and I said, how long do you think it is until Jude lets the intrusive thoughts win and puts that thing on his head? Sure enough, about 30 minutes into dinner, I look out the front porch and there's little seven-year-old Jude with a high school Murphy helmet on, like, looking like a bobblehead. I was like, ah, he let the intrusive thoughts win. Why? Because it's easy to just give in. Kids do this all the time. Where they're like, hmm, I wonder what happens if I stick this in a light. That was not fun. Try that a different way next time. See how that works right? Like, we let intrusive thoughts win. We, we let our flesh take over. We let the things that we should be fighting against, we just take the background and say, you know what? I'll just give into this. And, and then what we do is we try to manipulate the text and we try to manipulate what folks have said to us and taught to us over years to say, I don't know what that really means. The easiest way to do that is just to call into question the text, call into question the scripture. But here's the thing. You and I submit to a book that one is God incarnate, made flesh, dwelt among us, right? We see this, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. We hold that in our hands. This scripture is inspired and, and filled with God himself for us to hold and to read and to trust and for it to instruct us. And so sometimes we just want to throw it out with the bathwater and be like, okay, let's start fresh here. Let's throw this out. We don't have to follow this ancient document. Here's the thing. We follow a lot of ancient documents. Why do we want to question the scriptures? Well, because it teaches us how to live our lives. Right? How many of you study and read Plato or Aristotle in school? Yeah? Shakespeare. Do you know there's a doubt in the legitimacy that Shakespeare was actually one person and not just a group of people? Oh, a lot of people don't know that. Why? Because Shakespeare isn't telling you how to live your life. Right? Unless you're in a crappy Hallmark movie. Right? Shakespeare's not trying to teach you how to live your life. It's poetic. It's artistic. Right? The words of Plato... The words of Socrates, the words of Tacitus or Homer, Pliny, 
all these different historians and writers, right, we, we hold those truths often. We quote them, we understand them, we study them in school. But did you know that the Bible, in comparison, that those documents hold no candle? I got this graphic. You can throw it up there. We get a little nerdy this morning. I don't have glasses on or I'd shove them up on my nose. Um, so this document right here, this, this graph will show you a handful of historical documents, right? You've got Plato, and you've got uh, uh, Caesar, and Tacitus, and Aristotle, and, and Homer, right? We all had to read some of these books in school. And what's crazy is, is we, we hold them as just really solid ancient documents. Like, for example, Plato. So the way you, you judge a document of being historically accurate is by looking at when it was written, the number of years before the first copies appear, and how many of copies in the original languages you have. Well, let's look at Plato. 427 to 347 B.C., earliest copy, 900 A.D. That's 1,200 years from the time that Plato spoke the words to the first copy. You know how many copies we have in the original language? Seven. Seven. We hold that document to be pretty solid. What, what about Aristotle? Well, we got a period of 1,400 years and 49 copies. That's better. What about the Iliad or the Odyssey? Y'all read that one, Iliad, Odyssey? Weird one. But everybody had to read it in school. We're talking about a period of 500 years. And there's 643 copies. New Testament. Less than 1,000 years, 5,600 copies in the original language. Okay, if we're looking at historical documents, the, the Bible's got it. We can't question that component. Of it. So what are we really questioning when we doubt the Scripture? We don't let them encourage us, and we choose to, to cut them and piece them apart. What we're really questioning is not are they, are they accurate, not are they longstanding. No, we're questioning that we actually believe them. Why? Because we don't really want to be encouraged in the Spirit. We want to be encouraged in our sin. We want someone to say, you're right. Live your truth. Live your feelings. Go through your life. Make your own choices. For anyone under the age of like 40 in here, YOLO, right? You only live once. That's, that's life? No. That's not what the Scripture is teaching us. We need to let the Scriptures encourage our heart. That's why we do this. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings to be encouraged in our heart as believers in Christ to to go on and function together, to fight sin together, to live godly lives together, to set an example together, to reach a community that lives in darkness together. That's where we're at. So one, Paul wants us to be encouraged in our heart. Two, the next thing that I think we see in this text is that peace is internal before it's external. That's what Paul says next. He says that you would be encouraged in your hearts. And then he says, peace be to the brothers. Peace be to the brothers. Right? The word peace, we often think, is a wartime mentality. Right? We think about the current conflict in the Middle East in Israel and Gaza. We think about uh, World War II or the Civil War or Vietnam. We wrestle through different things and we, we see peace as this idea of an end to war. But that's not really what peace means. Peace isn't just an end to a battle or a fight. Peace is very complicated. Every conflict has ended, and every ending is rooted in humility and submission or annihilation. Right? Look at them. Every conflict ends with someone being humbled 
or someone being annihilated. You can go back through every war and battle in history and you're going to see the same thing. Either someone submits or someone is defeated. Right? Every time. You go to the Civil War, the South submitted. You go to World War II, Germany submits. Japan submits. Eventually, there's this moment of we admit defeat here. Peace comes by defeat or peace comes by submission. And he says, peace be upon you. Peace be to the brothers. Peace be to the body of Christ. This isn't some hippie ideology of let's just all live in harmony and coexist with one another. That's not how peace really works. See how peace structurally works throughout all of human history. It's not just a simple coexisting. One party must submit to the other or admit defeat. That's the only way peace can be achieved. We see this throughout all of the scripture that we're called to be at peace. The only way we can see this and how we can be at peace in my home and in my body and in my mind in this life is this. A, first be at peace with Christ. We must be at peace with Christ. Right? We looked over this earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, when he said, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down this flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see the word picture that Paul's using? He's hearkening back to this moment that he's already stated in this same letter to these same people, Right When he says, peace be the brothers, he's saying, remember what I said in chapter 2, that God must murder the flesh inside of you, put to death the sin in your life, and resurrect you into a new person, because on your own standing, you cannot make it. To get to peace, you must instead submit to God, and that dividing wall Christ has to crush, and by his blood on the cross, kill the hostility. That's how peace is achieved. So if I'm going to have peace, I have to first have peace with Christ. And I, I, I can't have peace with others. I can't have peace in my mind. I can't have peace in this life if I stand at odds with God himself. That's why the first point of this is so important for us to submit ourselves to the scripture. Because here's the thing. So often we come to try to submit the word to us and grab a hold of it and master it, but we can't. He must be mastered by the scripture. Why? Because like John said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Right? The word is God himself and you can't master God because we are finite and he is infinite. That's how it works. You can't, you can't curve God to fit in your box. You must submit to him. You must come to peace with Christ and come to peace with the word and make the word function in your life so that it kills the hostility, so that it puts to death the sin. The, the great Puritan writer John Owens wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, and in it he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But it's this ideology that if you're not actively fighting sin every moment, every day, you are losing, and it is beating you up, and it is murdering you, and it is killing you piece by piece by piece. You have to actively fight sin. So if I'm going to have peace, I have to first have peace with Christ. And then, and only then, we must know that peace only comes by the Spirit. I must seek it, pray for it, desire it. 
but know that it is only the Spirit that brings about peace. It's the Spirit that lives inside of me that will bring peace between myself and other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is peace that comes only by the Spirit, right? It's a fruit of the Spirit for us to be at peace with one another, functioning in unity of the body. Here's the thing. If the Spirit does not draw this to unity and peace, if the Spirit doesn't do that in your life, then either A, you're not a believer in Jesus and that Spirit's not in you. Or B, you are a believer in Jesus and you are actively resisting God's call to unity and peace within the body of Christ. That's as simple as I can make it. Either A, you aren't really following Jesus and you're living in your sin and choosing to hang on to that because it is peaceful and at home for you. Or B, that sin has put a dividing wall back up between you and the Lord and you are actively resisting God trying to destroy that in your life. That's the only options for us. You can't find and desire peace within the body of Christ. Then either you don't have the spirit or you're fighting against it. Right? This is something we're supposed to seek for. Peace within the brotherhood of Christ. The next thing that Paul says is that rooted in true love. I dropped my very fancy bookmark. I got this as a pastor appreciation gift. Reading is bacon for the brain. It's truth. Right, he says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Right, faith in Christ is rooted in true love. It's anchored in, it has to be. It has to be rooted in true love. We must love God more than we love anything else in order for us to have faith in it. Are we fully submitted to Christ? Paul wishes us peace and faith rooted in love, the same love that Jesus expounded on in Mark chapter 12, when he said the most important thing is that Did this thing just die? Oh, this thing keeps cutting out. Is it cutting out? Okay. Maybe it's the antenna. That looks, I feel like that looks goofy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of the understanding, with all of your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Our Jesus tells us this. Our faith must be rooted in a love that is self-sacrificial and humble. It's got to be rooted in a love that seeks to honor and serve others more than ourselves. Here's our, probably our biggest problem, especially in the American church, is that we don't understand humility. We don't understand selflessness. We understand selfishness. That's what we operate in American society. The American dream is wrapped around do what you want to get what you want how you want. Newsflash. That's unbiblical in every aspect. The scripture is rooted around humbly submitting to one another, outdoing one another and showing honor, selflessly loving our spouse, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago in Ephesians. 
Right? The role of a husband for a wife is to literally play the role of Christ and sacrifice yourself unto death. The role of the wife is to submit herself to the husband in a way that honors God like Christ to the church. Like There's this picture of humility and self-submission that we do not like in America. Why? Because we are selfish. We're selfish. Right? We want to earn what we can earn, take what we can take, have what we want, have the toys in life we want, have the money in life we want, get all the things we really enjoy and hold them tight to our chest. But he who dies with the most toys still dies. It's the truth of it. We have to have a faith that is rooted in true love, and true love is one that sacrifices. Right? Jesus examples that for us. And the fact that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we have blasphemed, Christ died for us. Right? There's a whole book in the scripture that points this picture out. The book of Hosea with this idea of, of Hosea marrying a prostitute who runs away and him buying her back. Right? That's us. We're the prostitute. Right? That, that's how that story operates. It's not often that we get to put ourselves into the text, but in that story we can it's this picture of Christ and the church seeking us out when we fail over and over and over again and run away over and over and over again and he keeps pulling us back and chasing us down to love like he loves, sacrificially with all of our heart. Right? God, Jesus himself says that to us, that we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. He, he reads and quotes the very beginning of what's called the Shema in the Old Testament where he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? This idea that the Trinitarian God is one God over all things, that the Spirit, the Son, and God himself is all wrapped up in one, and that one God shows a perfect picture of love and unity and peace within itself. He submits to one another, and God himself is submitting to God himself. That The Son submits to the Father, and the Father to the Son, and the Son to the Spirit, and the Spirit to the Son, and the Spirit to the Father. Right? You see how this works? It all wraps around in one circle where God examples this for us as he rules and reigns over us and loves us and shows us what it means to love. And sometimes that love is in a way that picks us up when we're broken and busted, holds us in his arms, and rescues us out of tough situations and darkness, plucks us up as broken and battered pieces like we sang in the song right before the sermon that all these pieces broken and shattered that he picks us up and he puts us back together like a good father band-aiding a busted knee after a bike accident. And sometimes he's a disciplinarian, right? We're on the verge of Christmas. Inevitably, if you have TBS like I grew up, which is both a positive and a negative, okay? Because I grew up watching a lot of movies on TBS and then as an adult, I thought, those movies are great. And I bought them on DVD and realized TBS did me a lot of favors in censoring <laughs> The Goonies and Christmas Vacation. <laughs> uh, but inevitably, this Christmas season, you'll see the Christmas story and Ralphie in his pink bunny suit. Sometimes God is the Santa Claus in the Christmas story saying, you want a Red Ryder BB gun? You shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> right? Like, how many times do they get told, you're going to shoot your eye out? And then what does he do? He shoots his eye out. Catches him. Luckily, those glasses, those thick Coke bottle glasses catch him. Right? Sometimes God is saying, don't do that. 
this is a, this is a bad idea. That's, that's sin. I, I wouldn't advise that. Sometimes he just flat out says, stop it. No. I, uh, we have a one-year-old who right now is going through this, this phase where um, he doesn't say a lot of words, but he grunts and points at a lot of things. Um, he does say, dada and mama and dog. <laughs> we taught them that at a very early age, you know. I'll look at him and I'll go, Ezra, go dogs. And he'll go, hoo, 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 <laughs> Raise up a child in the way that she, he will go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, but he's going through this phase now where, like, you look at him and he'll do something. And you'll be like, no, sir. No, sir, buddy. And then he makes uh, this face. <laughs> which is followed up by this face. And then he'll flop on the floor. And you're like, I'm trying to help you here, buddy. I don't think you understand. DSS will come and get me if I let you drink that. That's pine salt. You know, like this happened the other day. He, he opened the cabinets underneath the sink, dug around out there, and then pulled out a bottle of dish soap and was like, ah. And I was like, no, no, sir, no, sir. And he freaked out like I had just taken candy from him. I'm like, I don't think you understand. You don't want to drink that. It's Dawn dish soap. It doesn't taste good. And you're going to burp bubbles. Like, stop it. He doesn't understand that concept. Why? Because he's, he's missing the point. Because he's only a year old. He's, he's not functionally there yet. You often like that with God. Where we're not functionally there yet somehow. Because we've not submitted ourselves to the word. And God's saying, stop it. Don't do that. Please. And there's other times where he's like, you're getting it. Right? The proud moment where you're like, oh, they get it. I remember my oldest, like, sitting at the table and hearing her read and thinking, she figured it out. She can read, which I didn't realize until I became a parent how good a feeling it is when you feel like, ha, ha, ha. We taught our kid to read. We're not terrible parents. We're also not terrible homeschoolers. She's a genius, you know, like basic stuff like reading. Why? Like that, that's the way that God operates in our life, seeking to make peace by tearing down the wall of hostility and parenting us through this. And some of us have a poor understanding of this because we don't, we don't have good parents. Some of our parents were not good when we were little. Some of your parents are no longer with you. Some of our parents were great some of us were raised in single-parent homes. Some of you had abusive parents. Some of you were raised by grandparents. Some of you don't have a full understanding of a picture of God as a fully functioning father. That's okay. It's okay that those people have failed you because God will not. He's a perfect father. Some of you have a failed picture of what it looks like because perhaps you've had a marriage that struggled or your marriage has failed or if you've had a husband that has not loved you the way that Christ loved the church. That's That's okay. Jesus is the perfect husband. He loves the church, his bride, and he scoops it up and he sacrifices and he loves it with self-sacrificing love to the point of death for it. And though the human model may often fail you and give you a poor example, instead, God has given you truth in the picture of him and who he is and the way that he makes peace with the hostility in your life and defeats the strongholds of sin. And the last thing that Paul says is this. 
Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What does he mean by an incorruptible love? Well, the same love that God sacrificed for you to make peace. That's an incorruptible love that we are not often incapable of. But Paul says we as the church have it. Why? Because it's the love of Christ within us. It's the, it's the love. In it. it means we're, we're covered by this same grace that gives us an, this un, incorruptible love, that same grace that we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he says that he searches and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That for those who love God, all things work together for good who are called according to his purpose. That same grace that he gives us there. It's the same grace that searched our hearts, that intercedes for us, that works all things together for good and calls us according to his purpose. It's the same love that sacrifices and loves us. It's the same love that in James chapter 4 verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? This incorruptible love that comes from grace is one where we humbly submit ourselves. And we see ourselves as less than God because we live in a society that wants to make us gods. Gods of our hearts, gods of our minds, gods of our finances and our sexuality and our schools and our governments. Gods over everything that we actually have no power over in our own understanding and strength. You can't be a god of your own life. Why? You will mess it up. As the great theologian once said, the only thing that you brought to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's how we operate in life. But God gives us grace after grace after grace after grace, and that grace produces within us an incorruptible love. Why? Because it's not our own love. It is not love we can harvest. It is not love we can produce. We can't manufacture it. Instead, that love comes overflowing from us as we live in Christ, as we submit ourselves to the Spirit, as we're encouraged by the, the Scriptures, as we're encouraged by the body of Christ, as we act fight sin and seek peace, as we actively look this grace that God gives us, that love is welling up inside of us as a byproduct of Christ. That's how we're called to operate. Not living day to day to day in the struggle, but instead living in the overflow, not of our own abilities, but of God's grace and mercy in our lives. To learn to live in that overflow. I think so often we're struggling from because we're not submitting ourselves to the word of God and living in the overflow of God working inside of us. We're just trying to string together teachings and experiences to, to drag us along. And instead, we should be continually filling ourselves over and over so that spirit overflows and pours out of us an incorruptible love. So this morning as we close and wrap up, we can see that you and I can't love without corruption. We can't function in an incorruptible love lest we love by the Spirit like Jesus first loved us. We celebrate that this morning as we come to take the Lord's table. An incorruptible love that poured out over us that functioned in a way that rescued us out of darkness 
And every time we come to this table and we stand here and we receive these elements and we drink in the juice and we eat the bread, not just symbols, right? Yes, they're bread and probably, I would say Welch's, but I think we're cheaper than that, so it's probably great value. It's not, right, yes, is it grape juice and little stale cracker thingies? Yes. But here's the thing, that's not just a symbol of body and blood. If we are here as believers in Christ and the spirit that lives inside, that spirit is here in you and in me. It is in this room. It means God is in the table. He's here. He's part of this. He's functioning through this symbol as we partake it and we are drinking in more of Christ and we are eating in more of Christ and we are doing it in a community as a meal together, which is no irony that we're doing this right after Thanksgiving where we gathered together in homes as communities and drank in together and ate in together and celebrated with one another in a way that we were feasting together. This, that was a feast of friendship and, and in our culture, but this is a feast of fellowship with our God. God. 